if you're able, would you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. After this morning, we'll turn to it just two more times, to Ephesians, and then we should be through the book. We're going to read verses 17 through 20 of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be considering half of verse 17 this morning, so it doesn't seem like we're moving very fast, but we'll get there. Ephesians 6, 6, 17, this is the word of our Lord, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication within the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you bring, you open our eyes to see great things concerning you, wonderful things concerning you in this passage. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. During the, the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were involved in an arms race never heard of before. Each side producing bigger and better and more destructive weapons in the hopes that they never had to use it. That became the doctrine known as the mutually assured destruction. If both sides had enough weapons, they both would not dare launch an an attack because they would be obliterated immediately by the other side. Now, these weapons were massively powerful. You think of... uh, the famous atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, these, the, those were uh, poppers compared to the nuclear weapons developed during the Cold War and still held by uh, both the United States and Russia today. But those weapons could only be used for destruction. That was the only reason for that. I don't know, some of you may remember growing up during the Cold War and uh, being afraid, and when you, you know, the news often would play things that would make you afraid, and you had to, uh, you know, uh, worry about the bomb dropping. I live in Brazil, so no bomb was going to drop there. There's no strategic uh, target uh, uh, there. But I hear that some of you would uh, practice getting under your desks for a nuclear attack. That would be effective, uh, uh, right there. Uh, But those weapons, all that they could do is destroy. Before us today, and every time we open the Word of God, we have a weapon that is infinitely more powerful than the combined arsenal of the United States and the Soviet Union. Our weapon is the Bible. And our weapon is not only powerful to destroy what is evil and wicked, but it's even more powerful to build up what is good. So we have a weapon that not only destroys, but also builds up. Now, the very last element in the whole armor of God is the only offensive weapon that is given in this uh, armor that God dresses us with. And that weapon is the Bible. And what a weapon this is. 
This is going to be an unusual sermon because we're not we're going to talk about several Bible passages. I tend to stick to one Bible passage and walk us through almost word for word or word by word in that passage. But today we're not going to do that. We're going to go all over the Bible. But I'm only going to ask you to turn to two of them as we go through as we try to develop what Paul teaches concerning the Bible being the sword of the spirit. And the first thing I want to see talk about is the sword as a weapon. The sword Paul had in mind was the short Roman sword, the gladius. We had a student at Western Reform Seminary that wrote an entire 100-plus page dissertation on the use of the word sword in the Bible, comparing the different ways that that word was used and what it meant and so on. Oh, this one is the short Roman sword. It was designed for close-quarter combat, it had two cutting edges and could inflict a lot of damage. And by using that, because that was not the only offensive weapon that a Roman soldier wore, they also wore, uh, had carried two, at least two spears with him for attacking people, and they already had archery at the time as well. So Paul's choice of weapon tells us what kind of war we are involved as we're fighting Satan, as we're standing and we're uh, uh, resisting the attacks of Satan, his stratagems, his wiles, it's a particular sort of war that we are fighting. It's a close and personal war as we look at this weapon. It can only be used at close range. It is a messy and costly war. Blood and guts all over the place. That's the kind of war that Paul had in mind. That's the kind of message Paul wants us to have. We tend to be very comfortable in our life as Christians, thinking that everything is okay and that the world that we live in is neutral. That's not the case. Paul says that we are at war. And it is a bloody, spiritually bloody war that we are to fight. But the Bible is powerful. So the question is, why is the Bible such a powerful weapon. The more obvious answer is that this, the Bible is given to us by the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. That's why it's at the most basic level why the Bible is powerful, because it is the Word of God, the very words of God. God inspired the writers of the Scriptures to write down exactly what He, he wanted them to write down, even though it wasn't, wasn't a mechanic, they weren't robots, that their personalities come through. Paul's writings look and feel different than John's writings, but when they were done, what, what the result was the very words of God. And because God is perfect, that word was free of any error. So why is the Bible powerful? Because it is inspired. God breathed it out. And because it is inerrant, free of any errors. What it says goes. What it says is going to happen is going to happen. What it says concerning us is true. But besides this basic reason, let me give you at least, at least six other reasons that flow from the fact that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God for why the Bible is a powerful weapon. And the first one, it's going to be the longest one, is that the Bible is powerful because it equips the Christian to be and to do every last thing that he or she must be and do. The Bible is sufficient to equip us for whom we must be and what we must do. 
And that's the first passage I'm going to ask you to turn to is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul is speaking to Timothy. He already said that the word of God was powerful enough to save him, even from an early age. Uh, the implication that we get there the, uh, is that Timothy, as a, a very young child, came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And now he develops. And that's not only true for Timothy, but it's true for all who hear the word. And then in verse 16 of chapter 3, Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul has in mind here primarily the pastor. He's speaking to Timothy. He's trying to build up Timothy. Timothy was a very timid, man-fearing pastor. So when he says the man of God, he's primarily referring to pastors, but secondarily, that expression applies to anyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that the Word of God is sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God means that that's sufficient to equip all of us. Notice that the result of the Word of God having its way with us, the Word of God being wielded by the Spirit, working in us, the result of that is that we are complete. And the word here means pertaining to being qualified to perform some function. As the Word of God is used by God to work in us, we are completely qualified to do whatever it is that God calls us. And that includes more than going to the mission field. It includes how you live every second of your life. Some people think, oh, for the big things of life, I'll look at the Bible. But for the little things, I'll seek pop psychology. I'll seek help from the wisdom of the world. No, the Bible says that it's sufficient to equip us for everything that God calls us to do, including every second of every day of our lives. And how does the Bible do that? And as we read it, and especially as we hear it preached in the corporate worship and applied to us in one-on-one situations, the Bible does four things for us. Paul says, first, it teaches us. In verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine, biblically speaking, that means teaching. That's all it means. And the scriptures impart knowledge to us concerning Christ, concerning us. And the scriptures are useful for getting to know God. Our, our theological standards say that the main thing the Bible is teaching is what we need to, to believe concerning God and what God requires of us. Those are the two categories that you can put uh, that you can put every verse in the Bible under, which happens to be equivalent to the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. Uh, William Hendrickson is a commentator on the New Testament. He says, this is ever the basic to everything else. What we believe concerning God and what God requires of us is the basic for everything else. And, and though we can learn something about God by contemplating creation, we only get to know God as the Redeemer intimately and deeply through the Scriptures. So the Scriptures teach us concerning God and concerning us. 
John Calvin spent from, 19, from 1536 to 1562, the final edition of the Institutes. Sound right? 59, somewhere around there. Uh, from 36 to 52, kind of looking for the perfect words to have the final product. Uh, his intention wasn't to make the book bigger, though he did. You know, if you went to seminary, you would wish that he had stopped at 1536. It was one skinny volume. Uh, by the time he was done, it was two fat volumes. Uh, but he kept on rearranging things. He didn't change any doctrine in between, but he arranged and rewrote some things. And one thing they were trying to figure out, what is it that the Bible is all about? And he decided that the best way to define that was this. He said, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. I wonder what is out of, because it says nearly all wisdom. I wonder what is out of that. I think you could very well say that all wisdom is concerning these two categories. And we learn about those two categories in the Bible. So the Bible is sufficient to teach us everything that we need to know about God everything that we need to know about ourselves. So there is no better book if we want to learn who God is and who we are than the Bible. There is no more complete book either to know about those two things, us and God. But Paul continues and says that the, the Bible is not only useful for doctrine, it's also used for reproof. Reproof is warning based on the Scriptures. And that may not be, yeah, they may, that may not sound like something we want to be reproved. Nobody comes to church saying, Pastor, I'm really hoping I'm reproved today. I'm really hoping that you have a good rebuke for me. That, I woke up this morning and what I really wanted was a cup of rebuke to go uh, with my breakfast uh, this morning. So reproof may be not what we want, but that is something that we desperately need. It is part of the process of change. It is the insight that we need to know what we are changing from. So the scriptures are profitable and sufficient to tell us what is wrong with us, what we need to move on. That same word, this word reproof is used in, the, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as the word evidence. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, it says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence is the same word as reproof here. Is the evidence of the things that need to change in us. So if you need to know what's wrong with you, if you, need to know what, if you want to know what you need to change, the Bible is where you go to find that out because the Bible is useful for that. It's profitable for that. Paul continues says the Bible is good for correction. Another thing that uh, perhaps not what we want, right? To be corrected. Uh, but that's good for us. And this word means to stand up straight again. It implies that what was there before was broken and needed to be straightened and could not do it on its own. And it's important for us to remember that, that we are not okay. Did you get that? You are not okay. And that's where freedom is, is in knowing that, that you're not okay. And that it is okay. There's, there's freedom in that. And the Bible shows us where we're we going to go, not where we need to change, but where we're we going to change into. And that's the idea of correction. J. Adams says, if the Bible convicts you of sin, knocks you flat on your face, that's how he defines being convicted of sin. It also picks you up, dusts you off, 
gets you out of the trouble you brought on yourself and heads you in the right direction for the future. That's the idea of correction. Reproof identifies what needs to be changed. Correction shows you how you're going to change that into something else. But Paul continues and says the Bible is also profitable for instruction in righteousness. This is disciplined, tr- disciplined training. This is the actually working at being transformed by the Spirit of God. We sometimes believe in the doctrine of zap. Do you know what the doctrine is? That somehow God is going to immediately zap us and we're going to be like Jesus Christ. That doctrine is not taught in the Scriptures. What the Scriptures talk about is the life of struggle of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And the Bible gives us that instruction in righteousness as we grow and we're disciplined in our growth. We, The church has purchased for every family in the church a book called Habits of Grace. Suggested summer reading for you. And it covers spiritual disciplines, how we can discipline ourselves to grow in Christ. And it's heavily based on the Bible, because that's the only way that we're going to grow in Christ. And Paul describes that to Titus in the other pastoral epistle, where he says that we're looking for the blessed hope of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared to us, and because of that, we're being disciplined. We're training to live righteously now. Um, I'm training to participate in a, in a race in December. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. It's not a running race. That only if I go to hell, that's going to happen. That's how I picture hell as a marathon. Uh, as a swimming race. I'm planning on participating as a, a 5K swimming race. For, for those of you who don't know kilometers, that's five, uh, 3.1 uh, miles in the ocean. Uh, so I'm trying to go swimming every single day. And it's hard. Some days I said, just shoot me. I don't want to go in the pool. But if I wanted to get there... Now, I'm at, at, at 2,600 meters right now. I need to get to 5,000. If I want to get there, I need to discipline myself to train. That's true also of growing in Christ. And the only way we can do that is through the Word of God. So the Word of God is powerful to do that for us. This instruction in righteousness refers to what Paul had already talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, the put-offs and the put-ons that we find there. As we are instructed in righteousness, we're going to put away lying and speaking the truth and speak the truth instead. We're going to put away stealing and we're going to work and give. We're going to put away corrupt words and we're going to put on words that are gracious to other people. We're going to put on put out put off bitterness. We're going to put on kindness as the word of God works in us. So The Bible is powerful because it's sufficient for us to equip us to do everything that God calls us to do. Secondly, the Bible is powerful because it exposes every last corner of our hearts. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're often told that we need to know ourselves and that we do that by looking inside ourselves. 
even though in secular philosophy, existentialism is a bankrupt philosophy, in the church, we're encouraged, often evangelicalism, just look within yourself to find the answers. You need to see, uh, look at yourself, and so on. And there's some value to self-evaluation, but the best way to know ourselves is by looking at ourselves through the lens of the scriptures. Because that's what opens our hearts. That's what lays our hearts open before God. That's how even the secret corners of our hearts are uh, revealed to us. That's where the, the, the dark corners of our hearts are illuminated by the word of God. James says that the word of God is a mirror. That if you really want to see you as you are, you look at you through the scriptures. Let the scriptures give you categories to understand yourself. Not some secular system of thinking. And the Bible is the most powerful self-analysis tool there is. It's like a two-edged sword, Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews says. And we look at all the categories that the Bible gives and we use them to know ourselves. Male or female, and nothing in between. Saint or sinner. These are categories the Bible gives us as we evaluate ourselves. Thirdly, the Bible is powerful because it is sufficient for everything in life. Now, you see that I'm just saying differently something I already did, that I already said. The Bible is sufficient for everything in life. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain of, to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. And that knowledge is given to us through the Word. So God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So when we look for answers for the moral and relational issues of life somewhere else besides the Bible, we are really laying down the weapon that God has given us to fight Satan. So here we have Satan attacks our relationships, Satan attacks our ethics, our morals, and we're trying to figure out what we should do. Often we put in the very weapon that we're supposed to find all the answers in down and go look for answers somewhere else other than the scriptures. The effective way to fight Satan, the only way to fight Satan is to look to the Bible for how we should live. Fourthly, the Bible is so powerful that the whole universe will be judged by it. In Revelation 19, verses 15 and 21, the disciple, uh, the apostle John says this, now out of, out of his mouth goes, a, that's talking about Jesus at his coming, second coming, now out of, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What do you think this sword that comes out of the, the mouth of God, of, of Jesus is? Isn't that the sword of the Spirit that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6? So the sword of the Spirit that we have been given is the same weapon that Christ will use to judge the world. The standard of judgment is His Word. That's how powerful the Bible is. Fifthly, the Bible is powerful. Therefore, it is to be wielded at all times. Convenient times. And inconvenient times. After Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the, 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 all scriptures are inspired and are profitable, then he tells Timothy what to do with that, that word. In, in 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, 
Preach the word. Timothy, yes, as a shepherd of the flock, there are other things you're going to have to do. But your main calling as a shepherd is to preach the word. And then he tells Timothy when? Be ready in season and out of season. These two words, in season, out of season, means when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. That's when we wield the word of God. That's when we hold, that's when we use the word of God. We live in a world that is adamantly against anything the word of God says. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever had to try to have a conversation about the, the current cultural um, mindset concerning gender identity at the workplace, at your workplace? No. Jacob doesn't, doesn't count because he works with Evan, so there will be no controversy there. But if you're somewhere else and you're trying to talk about and bring what the Bible has to say about gender identity, well, how do you think that's going to be received? Not well. And yet, that's what we need to do. Though it's tempting, tempting to refrain from wielding it when it feel, we feel pressure. Even as a pastor talking to believers in counseling, sometimes the fear of man gets to me, and I'm afraid of actually saying to them what the Bible says. But we need to wield it. We need to hold it. We need to use it every moment of every day for ourselves and for others. And sixthly, <laughs> that's Asa. Uh, sixthly, the Bible is powerful. Therefore, it is not, it, therefore, it is to shape everything about us. The Bible is powerful, therefore, it is to shape everything about us. So, do you want to know what shape you should have? This is it. He said, that's not a very attractive shape. Well, I'm not talking about literally. This book is supposed to shape who you are. It's supposed to make you who you are. In Psalm 119, verses 33 to 38, what you just read for our responsive reading, the psalmist says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it. How? With my whole heart, with my whole being, my, my whole inner person is going to be controlled, shaped by your word. That being the case, the word of God being so powerful, how do we use the word of God to stand to Satan? And that's the second passage I'm going to ask you to turn, and we're almost done. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a second? Verses 3 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive into, into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The Word of God is powerful enough to destroy the fortresses of the enemy, the strongholds, the places where he feels safe and protected. It is powerful enough to answer any antichrist argument or idea. So how do we wield it? We wield it by knowing it, by studying it, by reading it. There's no reason to fear that there isn't going to be an answer for what those who deny Christ claim. 
There's no reason to fear that somehow an atheist somewhere is going to come up with an argument that's going to prove that God doesn't exist. It really doesn't matter how many degrees one has or how loud he gets, because today that's how you win arguments, right? Not by being reasonable, but by yelling louder than the other person. Jesus Christ, through His Word and Spirit, will answer all their objections, if not in this life, at His return. Uh, Simon Kissmaker, who is a commentator in the New Testament, says, The message of the gospel penetrates man-made walls by means of men and women armed with wisdom, courage, dedication, and faith. This means, the means, the means by which we destroy the fortresses of the enemy and dismantle every false argument is taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ. There may be a subjective element here in which each, in which each one of us must bring the thoughts in our heads into submission to Jesus, according to the Scriptures. But I think Paul has a much bigger application here. Every thought about everything must conform to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Every thought about everything must conform to what the Scriptures say. Now, the Bible doesn't speak in detail about everything in life, but it does give us categories that will help us think about everything in life. This is similar to what Abraham Kuyper was recorded to having said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ calls you to declare that Christ is sovereign over every area of thinking. And that's part of a journey to maturity. Remember Paul says when he was a child, he thought like a child. But as he grew up, he left childish things behind and matured. And as we mature, we bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. Every area of thinking into captivity to the word of Christ. What does it mean to be captive to Christ? What is the most ancient Christian confession? Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. So you take that confession and apply it to every area of thought there is according to the Scriptures. So Jesus is Lord over how you think about marriage according to the Scriptures. Jesus is Lord over how you think about your singleness. Jesus is Lord over how you think about money. Jesus is Lord over how you think about friendships. Jesus is Lord how you think about your studies, about how you think about the use of your phones, how you think about entertainment as a whole. Jesus is Lord over how you think about gender issues. Jesus is Lord about how you think about everything. If that's the case, then we have to hear from, his, from Him, and we hear from Him in His Word. And we bring every thought captive to the Lordship of Christ. And by doing, what we fight, by doing that, we fight the war of life, destroying all His and our enemies. And we do all this by using the measure God has given us, His Word. As, Timothy, as Paul is coming to the close of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he speaks to Timothy and he says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. So Paul is in prison because of his proclamation of the gospel. But then he ends verse 9 this way, I am in chains, but the word of God is not chained. Do you believe that? 
Spurgeon said that the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to tame it. Just let it go. And it will, will roar loudly. And uh, eat whatever it needs to eat. The word of God is the only offensive weapon that we have in this cosmic war against Satan and his angels. It is the most powerful weapon in existence. And it changes us and changes the world around us. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you're going to repent from seeking wisdom in places where are not dominated by the Word of God, and you're going to focus on what God says concerning Himself and what He requires of all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your Word. We pray that you would have your way with us through it. Increase our belief in it. Increase our understanding of it. Increase our submission to it. For us in Jesus' name, amen.